is music notes and more with your host, Jason Ginty. Nirvana, Soundgarden, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers release classic albums on the same day. John Bonham is dead at 32. Van Halen doesn't like a certain colored M&M. James Brown hauls ass. Black Sabbath say, no thank you. Bruce Springsteen turns 70. Huge tragedy with Metallica. And Paul McCartney's dead. Or not dead. I'll explain. Well, we got a lot to cover this week. Now, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends all about it. Look, here's what's going on. I'm really trying to find interesting stories or facts that most people don't know. Or I'm at least trying to find the interesting angles on popular stories. Either way, I hope it's interesting and I do appreciate you listening. Comments are always welcome. Just leave them wherever you listen to this podcast. A lot to cover for the week of September 23rd. It was this week in 1980 that tragedy struck as John Bonzo Bonham of Led Zeppelin died of asphyxiation on his own vomit due to consumption of way too much booze. Now, the group decided to disband when they determined that their drummer could not be replaced. Bonzo was found dead at Jimmy Page's house of what was described as asphyxiation after inhaling his own vomit after excessive vodka consumption, 40 shots of it in four hours. Now, John Bonham began teaching himself to play the drums at age five. He was making uh, primitive drum kits out of empty coffee containers, pots and pans, and other assorted kitchenware. That's pretty common for a lot of kids. But he got his real first snare drum at age 10 and his first full drum kit at age 15. Now, by 16 years of age, he was playing in his first semi-professional band. And while his band was recording a demo, the sound engineer told John Bottom that he played way too loud and was unrecordable. Years later... John Bonham sent the sound engineer a gold record from Led Zeppelin with a note saying, Hey, thanks for your advice. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Vanilla Fudge's drummer, Carmen Apice, became friends with John Bonham and introduced him to double bass drum kits incorporating larger 26-inch Ludwig bass drums, which at the time were only being used in marching bands. Now, look, if you're a drum dork, you know way more about this than I do, but I'm just trying to get a point across. The larger drums uh, gave him the opportunity to increase his volume on stage. Now, he was a hell of a drummer, but he also liked to party a little bit. He once drove a motorcycle, which was a gift for his 25th birthday, through the hallways of the Continental Hyatt House uh, Hotel in L.A., where the band had rented out multiple floors for their entourage. Now, Keith Moon from The Who and Keith Richards from The Stones were also visiting, and they dropped TVs out of the windows of the same hotel, which acquired the nickname The Riot House in L.A. There's no denying how great he was on the drums. In fact, Charlie Watts uh, of The Rolling Stones says, look, he was the best. Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers says, To me, hands down, John Bonham was the best rock drummer ever. And Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and Nirvana says, Look, I think he will forever be the greatest drummer of all time. 
Happy birthday this week to Bruce Springsteen, born this week in 1949. Yes, do the math on your fingers and toes. That makes him 70 years of age. He sold more than 65 million albums here in the United States and more than 120 million albums worldwide. He still tours, pulling off three-hour shows. Yes, at 70 years of age. So how's he do it? Well, he's been following a simple fitness program for the last 30 years. What he does is he alternates running four to six miles with strength training every other day. He also watches what he eats and is mostly vegetarian. And hard to believe, he's really never done a whole lot of drugs. So considering the rock and roll lifestyle, has never really gotten a hold of him. And that's how he stays in such great shape at 70. 1991, holy crap, did that bring some great music to the world. In fact, Nirvana's album Nevermind was released, entering the charts at number 144 on its first week. Now, the album did go on to peak at number one in January of 1992 and has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Now, the idea for the obviously now iconic front cover shot of the uh, naked baby swimming in the pool underwater came from Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl. They saw a TV documentary (laughs) on water babies for whatever reason. Um, There's something else you need to check out if you've got a copy uh, of uh, Nevermind from Nirvana. The hidden track called Endless Nameless was mistakenly left off of the first 50,000 copies. Now the track, which starts several minutes after the conclusion of the song Something in the Way, was kind of an improvised noise jam captured when the engineer kept the tape running after a botched attempt at recording the song Lithium. Now, there was an error at the pressing plant that printed the albums, and it caused the omission of the song. So you might want to check your copy of the album to make sure the hidden track, Endless Nameless, uh, is on there. Or better yet, not on there. It might be worth something. Now, on the same exact day, September 24th, 1991, the Red Hot Chili Peppers released their fifth album called Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. Now, the album included the songs Under the Bridge, Give It Away, and Suck My Kiss. It was produced by Rick Rubin. You know him from his work with the uh, Beastie Boys back in the day, and of course, a million other bands at this point. Uh, Its musical style differed notably from the techniques employed on the band's previous album called Mother's Milk from 1989. It featured minimal use of heavy metal guitar riffs. It was the Chili Peppers' introduction into worldwide popularity and critical acclaim. Now, the problem with that was uh, John Frusciante, the guitarist, he quit the band mid-tour in 1992 uh, due to his inability to cope with the band's popularity. Now, he did return back to the band in 1998 and then again left later on. Either way, the album uh, is recognized as an influential and seminal component of the alternative rock explosion in the early 1990s. Now, the band sought to record the album in a very unconventional setting, believing that it would enhance their creative output. So Rick Rubin, the producer, suggested the Red Hot Chili Peppers record in the mansion that magician Harry Houdini once lived in, to which they, of course, agreed. So a crew was hired. They set up all the studio gear and other equipment required for production in the house in L.A. So the Chili Peppers, being the Chili Peppers, decided, well, they should remain inside the mansion for the duration of the recording. So they did. Now, according to Anthony Kiedis, uh, drummer Chad Smith 
was convinced the location was haunted and refused to stay there. He would instead uh, show up each day on his motorcycle. Now, Chad Smith disputes this account, and instead he claims the real reason he did not stay at the mansion was because he wanted to go home to his wife each night. John Frushanti, however, says, uh, yeah, that may be true, but there are definitely ghosts in the house, and he felt they were very friendly. Okay. Now, during production, the band agreed to let Flea's brother-in-law document the creative process on film. When the album's recording was complete, the Chili Peppers released the film titled Funky Monks. So if you're a film fan, go out and dig that thing up. Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic has sold over 13 million copies worldwide. Now remember, that album was released on the same exact day as Nirvana's Nevermind. Something was happening in 1991. In fact, something else was happening because on that same exact day, another seminal grunge album was released. It's called Bad Motor Finger from Soundgarden. Yeah, the same damn day. Man. You'd have to deliver a lot of papers <laughs> to collect a lot of money to go to the record store on that day in 1991. It was the first album with bassist Ben Shepard. Now, Cornell has said that Shepard brought a fresh and creative approach to the recording sessions, and the band as a whole uh, said that his knowledge of music and writing skills redefined the band. Now, the focus on the Seattle grunge scene obviously helped bring attention to the album Bad Motor Finger and Soundgarden. Uh, it featured the singles Outshined and Rusty Cage. Those are your radio hits, but you got to check out the video. Once you're done listening to this, of course, for Jesus Christ Pose. It's incredible. I mean, like, you're going to need a break after you watch it. Guitarist Kim Theo suggested the title, Bad Motor Finger, kind of as a joke on the Montrose song, Bad Motor Scooter, from back in the early 70s. He said, look, it was sort of off the top of my head. I simply like it because it was a colorful world, uh, word. It was kind of aggressive, too. It conjures up a lot of different kinds of images. And they liked the ambiguity in it, the way it sounded and the way it looked. Soundgarden went on tour opening for Guns N' Roses on the Use Your Illusion Tour in 1992. Now, Chris Cornell talks about opening for Guns N' Roses during that time period. And he said, well, it wasn't a whole lot of fun going out in front of 40,000 Guns N' Roses fans and playing for 35 minutes every day because most of them hadn't heard our songs and didn't even care about us. It was a bizarre thing. Now, the band would go on to play uh, the 1992 Lollapalooza tour with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, and others, and that's when they really started to take off. This week back in 1969, it was reported by the London Daily Mirror that Paul McCartney was dead. Now, the story claimed that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash in 1966, and he had been replaced by a lookalike. Then a DJ in Detroit picked up on the claim, and the story went worldwide. Again, never trust a DJ on the radio, right? Uh, by late October 1969, the hoax was so well entrenched that Paul McCartney had to come out of seclusion at his Scottish farm to deny the story. When McCartney was asked to comment by a reporter visiting his farm, he said, Do I look dead? I'm as fit as a fiddle. During the 1970s, the phenomenon was the subject of analysis in the fields of sociology, psychology, and communications. References to the legend are still occasionally made in pop culture. McCartney himself poked fun at it with his 1993 live album, calling it Paul is Live, uh, with cover art 
parodying clues allegedly placed on the cover of the Beatles album Abbey Road. Now, in 2009, Time Magazine included Paul is Dead in its feature uh, on 10 of the world's most enduring conspiracy theories. He is still, as of today, very much alive. James Brown, often called the hardest working man in show business or the self-styled soul brother number one, became inmate number 155413 at South Carolina's State Park Correctional Center this week back in 1988. You see, he was to serve a six-year sentence for carrying a deadly weapon at a public gathering, attempting to flee the police, and driving under the influence of drugs. He had developed a bit of a PCP habit in the late 80s and began acting very erratic in many of his interviews. Things went bad one day when he reportedly stormed into the insurance company next door to his office, waving a shotgun and complaining that strangers were using his bathroom. Now, when the police arrived, Brown took off and led them on a high-speed chase through Georgia and South Carolina. He tried to ram police cars with his pickup truck. The cops shot out two of his tires, and he continued to drive on the metal rims for six more miles. He did end up getting caught, of course, and went to jail. He was freed in 1991 after serving half of his six-year sentence. It was this week back in 1986 that Cliff Burton, the bassist in Metallica, was killed when their tour bus crashed in Sweden. Burton was 24 years old. Now here's what happened. They were on a tour in support of the Master of Puppets album and the band had complained that the sleeping cubes on their tour bus were unsatisfactory and uncomfortable. So to decide who received the cool pick of the bunks, Kirk Hammett and Cliff Burton drew cards each night. And on the evening of September 26, 1986, Burton won the game with an ace of spades, thereby getting the first choice of bunk. And Burton turned to Kirk Hammett and said, I want your bunk. Hammett then said, fine, take my bunk. I'll sleep up front. It's probably better up there anyway. Cliff Burton was sleeping shortly before 7 a.m. on September 27th when, according to the driver, the bus skidded off the road and flipped onto the grass. Burton was thrown through the window of the bus, which fell on top of him, resulting in his death. Rolling Stone magazine has called him one of the greatest bassists of all time. He was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Metallica in 2009. In 2017, it was revealed that Cliff Burton's parents had been quietly donating his posthumous royalty payments to a scholarship fund in his name for music students at the high school he once attended. Back in 2003, there's a report that published uh, the requests by artists to the venues they performed at for their backstage requirements. The bands want to be comfortable before they perform backstage, so certain things are expected. Look, when you go to a concert, you show up, you buy some beers, and you wait for them to come out. Well, most artists are doing this three or four or five times a week, and they want the backstage to be comfortable, and sometimes they have some crazy demands that they want. For instance, Madonna 
She requires all furniture be removed from the dressing rooms and replaced with her own pieces that she has shipped in. Back in the day, Iggy Pop demands were just nuts. Uh, He said, I want one monitor man who speaks English and is not afraid of death. I also want seven dwarves dressed up as those dwarves out of that marvelous Walt Disney film. Yeah, Iggy Pop probably didn't get many of those requests honored. Johnny Cash was pretty simple. He just needed an American flag in full view of every audience member. That was his request. The Rolling Stones needed a room for their traveling pool table so they could play some pool before the gigs. Motley Crue's rider asked for a lot of different things, including local Alcoholics Anonymous meeting schedules, a submachine gun, a 12-foot boa constrictor, and a jar of gray Poupon mustard. They wanted these things backstage before every show. One time in 1988, frontman Vince Neil found the wrong mustard backstage. He loses his shit and threw the bottle at the wall. Here's the problem. The bottle bounced back and severed an artery in his thumb. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Eminem, the rapper, he asked for a wooden pond to be constructed in his backstage area and filled with koi, carp. Kanye West, he requires a barber chair, a barber's chair backstage. Mariah Carey insists on two vases of white roses and only wants bendy straws as she refuses to drink out of straight ones. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, they've asked for a meditation room backstage and a selection of aromatherapy candles. Actually, that one's not so bad. Barry Manilow, yeah, Barry Manilow requested that the air temperature in the auditoriums be kept at 65 degrees. So all these crazy demands are going on up until today, but they all come from somewhere. They come from one of rock's biggest legends of all time, Van Halen's Brown M&M's. Now, you've probably heard this story before, but let me set it straight. You see, Van Halen demanded that there be bowls of M&M's, the delicious candy, in their dressing rooms and backstage. But here's the twist. They wanted all the brown M&M's taken out of all the bowls. They didn't want to see one brown M&M either one, the dark one or the light one, in those bowls. Now, that legend turned out to be actually true. You see, in the 1980s, Van Halen demanded via a clause that was embedded deep into their tour rider that no brown-colored M&Ms be allowed backstage, right? Most people thought that the band was just being a bunch of pompous asses because they were so huge and major rock stars at that time. Well... The seemingly ludicrous request was actually a shrewd business and safety move. Right. The band's concert writer, or the contract, had a clause saying, no brown M&Ms backstage. Or the promoter would forfeit the entire show at full price. That's right. Van Halen would still get paid even though no concert would happen. And the promoters do not want that to happen. David Lee Roth says the bowl of M&M's was an indicator of whether the concert promoter had actually read the band's complicated contract that was, quote, thicker than a Chinese phone book. Van Halen was the first band to take huge lights and all that crazy gear around the country. At the time, the stage show was the biggest production ever. 
during that time period. And in many cases, the venues were very outdated or inadequately uh, prepared to set up the band's sophisticated stage. Roth says, quote, If I came backstage and I saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then I can guarantee the promoter had not read the contract writer, and we would have to do a serious line check of the entire stage setup. It became a huge safety issue. All that gear hanging from the rafters could come crashing down on anyone at any time. So anytime Dave would see brown M&Ms backstage before a gig, he would trash the dressing room to send a message to the promoter. He'd then have to check everything on stage. Now, the legend started to grow that Dave would freak out over brown M&Ms, and he wouldn't really tell anyone the reason because, well, he's a damn rock star and a smart one. He wants the legend to grow. Now, Roth would often show up to the venues a couple of hours early and he would walk backstage and there'd be old ladies separating out the brown M&Ms from the rest of the bag. And when he would see that, he would laugh, and, but then he would know that everything was okay because that promoter actually read the contract. One time, uh, at one concert, the very heavy Van Halen stage sunk into the venue's brand new rubberized floor that had been installed for the basketball team. It was brand new. Now, because the promoter didn't read the contract, that's why the floor got damaged. Had he read the contract, his floor would have been fine. He could have made preparations for that heavy stage. So Dave goes backstage, sees the brown M&Ms, and trashes the dressing room, causing about $200 worth of damage. Not a big deal. So the stage ends up ruining the arena's brand new floor to the tune of about $400,000. So over the next couple of days, media reports come out that Dave trashed the backstage area, man, and did $400,000 worth of damage. Ah, media, you really can't trust him, right? Well, it wasn't true, but as Dave says, who am I to stop a good rumor, thus helping to solidify a massive rock and roll legend? In 1984 this week, the Prince song Purple Rain was released. Now, Purple Rain was originally written as a country song and intended to be a collaboration with Stevie Nicks. According to Stevie Nicks, she received a 10-minute instrumental version of the song from Prince with a request to write the lyrics. But she felt overwhelmed by the whole thing. She said, look, I listened to it and I just got scared. So she called him back and said, look, I can't do it. I wish I could. It's just way too much for me. So Prince, never one to quit, uh, brings the music to his band, his backing band at the time, at a rehearsal. He says they played it for six hours straight. And by, by the end of the day, they had it mostly written and arranged. Now, after recording the song, Prince phoned Jonathan Kane. He's from Journey, the keyboard player, and asked him to listen to it as he was worried that it might be too similar to Journey's song called Faithfully. Right, that was written by Jonathan Kane, which had recently been on the charts. Prince didn't want to be called a ripoff artist, right? Well, Jonathan Kane told Prince, look, you're fine, it's cool. He says that the song only shared a couple of chords with Faithfully, You're Good, Go ahead. So Prince releases Purple Rain, and it's an epic classic. This week, back in 1976, Paul McCartney and Wings played a charity concert in St. Mark's Square 
in Venice, Italy to raise funds for this historic city. Well, if you're not familiar with Venice, it's absolutely gorgeous, so I highly suggest you visit it. But the problem with it, it's a city built on more than 100 small islands in a lagoon in the Adriatic Sea and has slowly been sinking for centuries, thus causing some serious flooding issues. Now, the purpose of the concert was to raise funds uh, to stop the decay of buildings in St. Mark's Square in Venice and prevent the city of canals from sinking. The good news is the concert raised a bunch of money. The bad news is the weight of the 25,000 people that showed up and all of the very heavy equipment used by the band caused even more damage to the square. Black Sabbath became eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995. They were finally nominated in 2000, which you're thinking, cool, makes sense, right? They've sold 75,000 some odd albums and have inspired just about everybody on earth who's ever picked up a guitar. Well, not exactly. Ozzy Osbourne formally requested that Black Sabbath be removed from the nomination list for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, calling the inclusion meaningless. Osborne also went on to say, hey, let's face it, Black Sabbath have never been media darling. We are a people's band, and that suits us just fine. Well, they must have had a change of heart because they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. Music Notes and More is written, recorded, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out other episodes that are packed with incredible information about your favorite bands. New episodes released every Friday. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you've got comments, do not hesitate to leave them right here where you're listening to this podcast.